Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Susan Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be joined today in the studio uh, with a, a wonderful woman with a very, very compelling story to tell. And her name is Lori St. John, and Lori is an attorney and author of The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Susan. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm so appreciative of you being with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. I have some interception um, on this line. I'm hearing some music. Oh, how about now? There we go. Okay. Perfect. Okay. We'll take, we'll take care of that. Thank you. Um, listen, I'd love to um, start uh, right off the bat with a, with a quote I received yesterday from Sister Helen Prejean, who um, at the time that you were going through this, um, these four years of uh, battling to prove innocence for uh, Joseph O'Dell, Sister Helen was a, a big supporter of yours. And I think for my listeners, it might give them a good sense of who you are and, and what you've been doing. Uh, Sister said, Lori St. John is one of the most passionately committed women I know who met an innocent man on death row and has expended her energies utterly to proclaim his innocence and continues to tell his story even after his death. That is what Sister Helen had to say about you. Yes. Uh, we worked um, very closely during the story, um, more towards the, the middle and the end when I realized I wasn't able to uh, get the assistance that I wanted to in the United States. So uh, in, in the book, as you know, The Corruption of Innocence, The Journey for Justice, um, it, you know, I gathered a team of experts, and we'll talk about that later. Right. And she was one of them, and she was a wonderful mentor and, you know, able to guide me through, you know, a maze of this unknown world that I had absolutely no idea, you know, I was getting into at the time. And she obviously was familiar with it, with her work is in Dead Man Walking. Yes, right. But I neglected to say that she is the author of Dead Man Walking. Yes. yes. Um, I want to go back a little bit and, and kind of start um, at the beginning uh, with you growing up in Connecticut. And uh, I would love to know from you, um, what those years were like growing up. I know that you mentioned um, the environment that you grew up in with your father um, being the assistant attorney general for Connecticut, that growing up, um, it was an environment of accountability for you and your sisters, um, your siblings. And talk to me a little bit about those years as a young girl. Well, uh, a young girl or a couple things going on in my life, you know, one, you know, being the daughter of an assistant attorney general, you know, really instilled some values in me. Uh, he was the president of the chess club in Hartford and graduated from Yale University. And you know, I used to watch him get ready for court in the morning with a little, you know, square in his pocket and bow tie and a hat upon his head. And, you know, he was, in my idea at the time, you know, a very conservative, you know, forthright, honest man, you know, who, who did very well in court. So, yeah, I was, you know, taught by example, you know, basically to believe in the system. My mom was a costume designer, and so she, she, did, um, she uh, definitely was instrumental in my life. She worked for the um, Hartford Ballet Company designing custom, um, custom, um, I guess, costumes for the uh, Nutcracker. 
And so, you know, I saw, you know, to both of my parents working diligently at what they did. I grew up in an environment that was fairly protected and and, uh, upper middle class America. So I had no idea about crime until I, you know, kind of left my area and went clothes shopping in Hartford. So I was, you know, relatively sheltered. Um, I really didn't know anything about, you know, other than what I might occasionally, very rarely see on TV. So I, I think one of the most instrumental things that occurred in my life at that, at a very young age, I think, is my father at, at the age of 14 for me uh, became, uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Right. And it was at that time that, you know, I saw what potentially could be the crumbling of a family unit. And it was at the age of 14 when I saw my mom, who was a homemaker, uh, I saw her then struggling with the concept of, oh, my gosh, you know, she married this, you know, brilliant, you know, handsome, amazing man, which, you know, all women aspire to do. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you know, this man who was climbing up the social ladder and, you know, really at the peak of his career in his 40s, all of a sudden came down with a debilitating disease, which ultimately left him bedridden. But at the age of 14, when we were sitting around this table at the VA hospital and they said, you know, you'll never walk again in the future, and we started watching him, you know, his health decline, it was at that time in my life, believe it or not, that I decided to become an accountant. I thought, well, I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm relying upon a man and I can't do something for myself. I want to be independent and I want to be able to work anywhere I want in the United States and not be stuck in one area. And so I decided at that time to become an accountant. Right. You know, that's that's so interesting to me because you really – I think that there were two things going on from what I read, that you had that um, determination to be able to um, take care of yourself and be independent, but that that diagnosis of your dad was also a moment where you felt such an injustice being done yeah. to, your, to your family personally. Yes. Yes, I did because, you know – we all, you know, like to believe that there's a God watching over us. And we all, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of us think that God is only all about good. And at that time, you know, of course, I know a lot better now than I did then. But at the time, I thought you know, he was such an amazing, wonderful guy. You know, I, I thought, how, why would God do this to someone like my father? Right. You know, it's a good man. Why and how could this happen? You know, it's not until many, many years later, probably just, about, you know, two years later, I started um, studying other things. I realized that there's a balance in the universe, and it's not all about good. It's good and bad, and it's about balancing things. It's about That's support right. and challenge, which is what my book is all about, you know, fighting through obstacles and challenges and seeing them, you know, instead of as a negative thing, as a positive thing, you know, to energize you and, and make you better at what you're doing to, you know, push through those things and reach your goals. Right. Can you talk to me a little bit about your years um, at the University of Connecticut? What types of um, activities were you involved in in, in college? Well, you know, it's funny because it, you know I was very active in in sports when and when I was in high school. When I entered college, I was not um, I was not a partying type girl at all. Um, I studied. I lived with my my sister in a in a an apartment. I never engaged in a dormitory kind of situation. Um, I went to one party and and uh, yeah, I remember 
like, that happened with guys. I'm like, okay, I don't really need to go to these parties anymore. So I really kind of stood apart from, you know, the college campus activities. Um, I, I focused on my work. Um, of course, my father was, you know, still ill at that time, so I would go home, you know, when I could. Right. But I focused mostly on, on the work and what I was going to do thereafter. And it was, of course, in college that I, that I met my, my future husband, who was in medical school at the time. And so my, my life began at that point. Right. I think we should, you know, move a little bit further ahead because there's so many questions I have um, regarding the work that you did and and at such a young age. Um, And I guess it all started in 1993 when you were um, sitting in a coffee shop, am I right, in Princeton and reading a newspaper um, and at the time still um, working as an accountant. Um, Yes. And you saw... um, you saw something that was posted by the Centurion Ministries regarding the organization and the work that they were doing to um, assist with convicts who were, um, they, they believed to be innocent and on death row. And I really wanted, in that moment, you know, a lot of people would read something like that and it would be intriguing and, you know, perhaps it would catch their eye and they would think about it. But you really made a decision to pick up the phone and call that organization and decide that you wanted to go volunteer. Yes, um, you know, and you're right. In the, you know, in the corruption of innocence, a journey for justice. I take people from the beginning of what what was my journey. So I had a, I was a CPA at the time. I had closed my CPA practice, and I was looking for something truly meaningful in my life. Right. So I just, you know, I really wanted to give back to society somehow, find my purpose. You know, we always look for something that's amazing. What's my purpose? Why am I here? And I didn't really think that it was an accounting. I knew that it was something much bigger, something, you know, more meaningful, but I didn't know what it was. And so, at the, you know, I did try, you know, to, to volunteer for a children's home organization, and, you know, they basically just, you know, took a look at me and, and thought, okay, well, you know, monetarily maybe she can help. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted to give back in a very personal way, you know, something truly meaningful. So when I was in that cafe, you know, after a tennis lesson, sitting in the middle of Princeton, and I saw that article, you know, I thought to myself at the time, what could be worse? than being in prison for something that you didn't do. Locked up, you know, the key thrown away and not having a voice and not having anyone listen to you, I couldn't imagine anything worse. Right. And it was at that moment that I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this is what I can do. And that's when I decided to march into Centurion Ministries at the time, become a volunteer, because I knew I had a way, you know, way into organization. They certainly weren't going to turn down someone who was offering free help. Right, right. Someone to read through all of those files. You know, I, um, I, I was so intrigued by the fact that, you know, you didn't have the experience at the time. You were not a lawyer. Uh, how old were you, Lori, at that time? I was in my late 30s. You're late. You know, I really, I had no experience at all. I had no idea what I was doing at all. I right. just, you know, in there as a volunteer, you know, said, this is what I'm going to do. I started looking at the 
the the portraits on the wall, the newspaper magazines, and one after the other, they were you know you know begging my attention, you know, and and I, and I was just thirsty for more information because I saw you know this man released after ten years for a rape and murder he didn't do, you know, another one and another one, and and I was just mesmerized by it. So it was by chance that. You know, the case of Joseph Odell, you know, I had read through hundreds of letters from inmates around our country. You know, Odell's case was the biggest one that they had coming on the schedule on called the board um, as a case to investigate. They were looking at that case for about six, seven years. So uh, they gave me the task of reading through about 15,000 pages of transcript material and really literally getting into every single document I could get my hands on to research and educate myself about the case. Right. You know, Lori, what was it that, um, that's a long time, I, uh, if I have it right, you were four years with this case um, mm-hmm. trying to prove uh, Joseph O'Dell's innocence. And I'm wondering how that type of determination is remarkable to me because um, most people... <laughs> You know, you want answers and you want answers right away. And there were so many, you know, one step forward, three steps back over those four years. Yes. How was it that you stayed so determined and focused with this case? Well, um, I like to say that when you something um, that is truly inspiring for you, which this was, um, the more I got, became knowledgeable about the facts of the case, the more I educated myself about what happened. I was on a journey to find out, was this man innocent of raping and murdering someone, or was, uh, or was he guilty of this crime? I truly wanted to know. Right. Um, it didn't matter to me whether he was innocent or guilty. I wanted to know the truth. So as I was investigating the case, I came across the intimidation of witnesses. I started, um, and I literally became an investigator. Um, I, I brought in Richard Reyna, who was the investigator on the Missing McVeigh case. He is one of the most amazing investigators in our country for death row cases. And I brought him in. Um, I brought Sister Helen in to do breast conferences. I brought Barry Sheck in and Michael Bodden, who did the O.J. Simpson case. I brought in all the the big guns in America with regard to educating myself about soil sample testing and botanical debris and you name it, you know, I was going to get into it and learn about it. And the more I uncovered um, facts about what we see on TV, um, I was I was shocked. I thought the system worked. You know, I, I grew up in a conservative family. My father was an assistant attorney general. I had no reason to think that people weren't honest when they were putting forth evidence. You know, I saw something entirely different than what I believed happened in our system. So what happened is when I started learning these um, these facts and I started challenging the, um, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Commonwealth didn't like it very much, and I found that as I was challenging them, they were ne- then become uh, maneuvering, and I saw a lot of political maneuvering going on behind the scenes because uh, knowledge is power. And I say in in this this um, article I did in uh, Jet Set Magazine, you know, there's a few steps over with you later about nine, ten steps on how to be empowered in what you're doing. Well, when you have knowledge and you know the details of this case, which I knew and came to learn better than the, the, the lawyers that were working on the case, you absolutely have power. 
And when they were not being honest about something, it was me that could pinpoint exactly where the truth was in court documents. It wasn't just my uh, my opinion, but it was fact. Fact based on a scientist, a lawyer, whatever it was in court. And the more they fought me, the uh, more I became fueled, so to speak. Right. So I had enormous challenges along the way that you're right. It would have been very easy to give up and just walk away. But for me, those challenges were inspiring. I took those challenges and I thought, oh, really? <laughs> you right. think that's going to stop me? It's not going to stop me. All it's going to do is, is make me find um, a more clever way, a creative way to get around the obstacle, to get around, you know, what you're trying to do to prevent the truth from, get it, from getting out. So I became more strategic. I assembled a, a powerful team of experts. I became more determined and I was more persistent. And so every time they did that, instead of me walking away, I, I became engrossed in this battle that I could not walk away from. It, it, just, it, it literally consumed my life. Um, and if you you know read the book, The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice, you'll see it literally consumed my life to a point where I really juggling my personal life. I had a daughter at the time who was 12, um, very, very active in school, as, as, you, as you saw through the book. Mm-hmm. And so juggling my life, like we all juggle our lives, we have so many responsibilities, but this became a focal point. And so it's at that, the, the very moment that the prosecutor in, this, in my case um, threatened to sue the newspaper that was about to expose the truth right. in a five-page article. Mm-hmm. It was an article that had investigated and worked on for a year and a half. I knew that the power of the government, the power of this prosecutor, was way more than, than just me. I was just one person. And so at that moment, I vowed to take this case to the world. And that's exactly what, what I ended up doing. I said, well, you can stop me in the United States. But I promise you, I will take this to the world. And that's when I started reaching out, you know, Susan, as you know, uh, uh, to foreign press, to Italy, to Germany, and what have you. And it's Italy that picked it up, and it landed front page on, on the most widely circulating paper there. Right. And it just created a stir that, you know, we can start talking about later, but, you know, and, and ultimately involved the Pope and the Teresa and the Italian and the European Parliament and really, you know, brought this case to um, international levels. Right. Why, why do you think, why Italy? Why, why do you think that they had such an interest? Well, um, what happened, you know, people surmise that, that it was just because they, you know, they were into death penalty. It wasn't that. Um, the political environment was right. They saw, you know, someone fighting for justice. They saw, you know, one woman, you know, on a mission. And sometimes when you're watching someone, whether it's me, whether it's someone else, when you're watching someone with such passion, with such, with such a mission, and there's nothing that's going to stop that person, nothing that's going to stand in their way, you know, it's, um, it's appealing. It's appealing because you want to know more. You want to know what's behind this. You want, you, know, you want to engage in it. So the more they became involved in it, the more they learned about the Odell case, the more they, you know, it fit the political environment for the, for the parliament. And it was the parliament called me and asked me to come over to Italy and talk about my case and 
sent me on a, a 10-day tour throughout their country where I was first received in the president's office with um, the first, you know, the advisor to the president and met with the president of the Senate and, you know, did a show with the foreign affairs prime minister and just met amazing, wonderful, you know, people all around the, the uh, country of Italy and was received at the Vatican the first time then and given a, um, a rosary by, by the Pope. Uh, wow. You know, they and they saw a great injustice being done, so they started investigating the case and learning about the case, and they signed a declaration uh, for the first time, and I know history uh, of the world, they signed an official declaration by everyone in the Italian parliament, you know, requesting DNA testing and just, you know, to halt the execution to see whether we were killing an innocent man. Right. That's remarkable. Um, Lori, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the relationship that began to develop uh, with you and Joseph. We'll be right back. Thank you. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at WPN at Villanova.edu or visit their website at Villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need.
Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio. Um, actually, I'm being joined on the phone today by Lori St. John, um, attorney and author of The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice. And uh, Lori St. John, at a time uh, prior to her going to law school, became very involved in a case um, after volunteering for an organization um, called the Centurion Ministries. And so much about this story is remarkable to me, Lori. And I wanted to to get into um, how a relationship developed between you and Joseph O'Dell, uh, the man who was on death row, over these years while you were working on the case and trying to um, find the truth. Talk a little bit about that, how that uh, came about, the relationship with you and Joseph. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it You know, it was very interesting to me because, you know, we all by stereotypes. I, I know I did. And, you know, in the beginning, I was researching the case, and, uh, you know, I started off as, you know, dear Mr. O'Dell, and sincerely yours, you know, Lori Erz, which was my name at the time. Right. And, you know, extremely, you know, to the point, direct, professional for, oh, maybe a year. Okay. And as the as I started getting information about him, reading his history, reading his, about his childhood, reading about you know um, the abuse that maybe occurred to in his life when he was younger, I, I thought to myself, and I always have thought, you know, how fortunate I was to have grown up daughter of an assistant attorney general. That doesn't mean that we all grow up in those circumstances. If in fact I grew up in the circumstances similar to that which Joe. Joseph Odell grew up into a father that that beat him, you know, with the, with the mother, you know, running away from home and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, my path would most likely be very different than what it turned out to be today. And so I was able to identify with him, not the, uh, the label that he had on his name as a death row inmate, but I became to learn about Joseph Odell as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm learning that we all have good and bad, and we all are good and bad. We're not all bad. We're not all good. And so there's qualities and traits in each of us that are very similar to one another. And the more I started communicating with him, the more I was amazed that I actually could learn from a death row inmate. That it wasn't just him learning and gaining information from me and my assistants and giving him a voice that he so desperately needed. I was learning from him. And it became this remarkable relationship where when you're fighting for someone's life, Susan, there is definitely nothing that can stand in your way. And I was literally, literally fighting for someone's life. And, and if you can imagine thinking that this person was innocent, that, that is, is, is scheduled to be put to death for something you believe that they didn't do, you can imagine the, the emotional impact that it would have on you because you're the, basically the only one really fighting. Right, right. In a situation where... You know, I'm a lawyer now, like you said. Um, I wasn't back then, and thank God that I wasn't back then, because I'll be forthright and honest about it, that if I was a lawyer then, I never would have done the work that I did. There's something about being a lawyer that changes you. Um, most lawyers don't fight the way I would fought during this case. 
you become a little bit, you know, you have to watch things you say. You can't really offend the other attorney. It's, it's a different game. Right. And I didn't want to be part of that game because the truth gets muddled somewhere in there. It's really not so much about the truth. So I was watching the lawyers not fighting for this man. I was watching them, you know, sitting in their ivory towers, a blue chip law firm, and watching them engage in this like political game with the prosecution. And I was not pleased with what I saw. I thought, my gosh, you're not fighting for your client. When the attorney general for the Commonwealth of Virginia is standing up and lying about the evidence at the end of oral argument, you're not saying anything. You're not writing a, a motion. You're not standing up and screaming, wait a minute, no, that's not true. And the more that happened, the more I became his protector. I became, you know, someone that was going to protect him against all the vultures that I saw outside in the world. And it was my role. It was almost um, like I wanted to bring to him in this cage, this little prison that where he was caged up, where he just always tells me, you know, my body might be caged, my body is in prison, but Lori, my mind isn't. Right. You know, right. you know, don't feel sorry for me. I know I don't want that. My mind is not in prison. They only have body. That's it. And that helped me get through this because I was starting to learn about an individual with feelings. You know, I, I, I you know, we, we were on the phone, to, uh, I guess, at one point, and it was, a, you know, a point, you know, when, when before the stay of execution, and I was driving down to Virginia, uh, you know, remember that scene on the highway, and I, you know, it was just so emotional that, you know, I burst out crying. And guess what? You know, this death row inmate was crying too. And we're both crying on the phone because it was just an intense emotional thing, you know, trying to stop, you know, them from pulling the switch and, and killing someone that you think is innocent. Right. So it becomes a, a, a journey far greater than yourself as a human being. And, and you'll see in reference, I'm not a, you know, extremely religious person, but I am this you know, case really made me a spiritual person because more than once, Susan, you know, I had to think, oh my goodness, you know, what's behind me? There's, this is not me. This is not me doing this work. I'm just being used as a vehicle, as a tool to change, you know, change the way the, the system works, to effectuate change, you know, and become a voice for Joseph O'Dell when in the early 90s, we didn't have you know, the internet as a voice, right? You know, it was actually, um, a new thing. So, so much so that that, um, 24 hours in cyberspace was a one-time digital project in 1996, February 8th, where they sent a hundred of photojournalists around the world, took 200,000 photographs of how the internet was impacting people's lives, how it was changing and focusing on the individual and giving people a voice. And they selected this website that I put up, which I had absolutely no idea how to do. I didn't even know a thing about getting an email. Right. You know, what's an email <laughs> I love that part of the book where you're talking about learning how to how to send an email. <laughs> <laughs> So I went to my, the, the CPA that I used to work for before I started my own practice, and I said, look, David, you know, I need an email address. I have no <laughs> idea what to do, but I need to get this guy a voice, so help me. Yeah, right. so whatever you 
to get me get me on the web. Right. And so he helped me. He gave me an advocator eight, you know, address, which I still have to this very day. I love that. And, yep. You know, he actually allowed me to get out to the world and and it was so new that the New York Times put it on their front page, you know, as a new way to give a voice to people, you know, who were facing execution. Out of the 200,000 photographs, they selected about 100 to be put in their book um, and memorialized um, in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington and put on, you know, they took 50 of those photographs and put them on the wall. And I was fortunate enough to have, you know, mine there representing the And so back then, it was a very different environment. It wasn't sexy to challenge the government. You know, it was unheard of, actually. Yes, And so yes. there I was challenging the government in a way that that is not like today where everyone challenges it and everybody questions it. No, back then it, that it wasn't the case at all. Right. It was, you know, it was how dare you challenge the government? How dare you question authority? And I dared. Yeah, well, that that's uh, to me, that bravery uh, is, is what is so remarkable to me. And, and, you know, I just reading the book over and over, I kept, you know, I was I had moments of being afraid myself reading the book for you. And then it was interesting to me that periodically you would say in the book, I was not afraid or I am not afraid, I guess. Um, that part to me was just uh, the most remarkable part. And I think that it was very timely what you were doing with regard to both the DNA testing and the internet. Um, you know, it, it was so interesting to see all of that unfold. I think it's important to point out that you did not from the very you know beginning, believe that he was innocent. You really wanted to get to the truth. I'm curious to know at what point it was that you were convinced that he was innocent. Um, there were about two or two, actually, two, it was one moment. There were about two or three different moments that all came together, and I was, I don't even know how to explain it. You have to read the book to, to tell you, you understand I was shocked. Um, one of the moments was when I interviewed the jailhouse snitch who I knew lied about Joseph O'Dell's confession. Right. The audience, you know, one of evidence in a very largely circumstantial case where three United States Supreme Court justices urged the courts to hear his case, even though he was procedurally barred. Because in our system, if the lawyer writes the wrong word on a motion, you can be procedurally barred from bringing all your issues up in court, and that's the end of you. And that's exactly what happened in the Odell case. I was reading the record, and I saw that there was absolutely no connection between Joseph Odell and and the victim, who, you know, happened to be at the same bar that night. No Mm -hmm. testimony that they talked, no testimony that they danced or knew each other. As a matter of fact, he left uh, at least a minimum half hour after he left. Yet we had this snitch get on the stand and say that he, you know, Joseph O'Dell said that he danced with her and bought her drinks and, you know, they left together and she got, you know, he got really upset when he, when she wouldn't give him sex and so he killed her. I thought, how could a prosecutor put this witness on the stand who is saying a completely different story than what they're putting forth to the jury? It, you're suborning perjury. But see, the only thing they had what, to really connect Joseph O'Dell with the victim was this jailhouse niche. So when I got to the jailhouse niche with Richard Rayner, and I'm not going to spoil everything, but I was able to show that jailhouse niche lied, and he admitted that he lied. So when he lied 
um, and, and and then he told the truth to us, and he went, you know, to the governor and went on, you know, to the newspapers, and he went to the lawyers, and he told everybody the truth. No one wanted to know the truth. The, the attorney generals went, uh, you know, to his house and, and threatened him with jail time and with perjury. Never once did they ask him what the truth was. So that was a, a key factor for me. Interestingly enough, in, in our relationship, I was protecting Joe Odell, but don't believe that Joseph Odell couldn't try to protect me from a steel, you know, six by, you know, four cell on death row in Virginia. And he was telling me all along, you know, be careful, don't go see Watson because he's going to lie about things and I don't want you to get in trouble. And, you know, because he knew what Watson did to him, the jailhouse snitch. Right. So he was protecting me. What you know, maybe Watson would say I offered him sexual favors. I mean, who knew what could happen? It was wild and crazy. Right. But, you know, I knew I was going to get the truth. So that was one instance. The other instance is I started seeing things in the record that were never brought to trial. Joseph O'Dell would always tell me something, and I always tried to catch him in a lie. I thought, I'm going to catch him. You know, one of these days, I'm going to figure out, you know, is he lying? Is he telling the truth? And I have to say... There wasn't one time I ever caught him in a lie that even if it was so unremarkably like out of this world that it couldn't be true, he was always right. And it really started dawning on me that, wow, wait wait a minute, you really isn't. And when I found votes for the um, public defense, he was pro se, largely pro se, because he didn't trust the public defender. And people would, would, would think, oh, that's impossible. How could you not trust your lawyer? Of course they're going to work for your, your interest. And, you know, I had trouble believing that maybe that wasn't true. But I saw firsthand how his own attorney at trial was undermining his case and actually were literally actually working with the prosecution and not defending his own client. And I can prove that because... He was, um, he didn't want to re- release his notes to the appellate attorneys to help Joseph O'Dell. And I thought, why didn't he want to release his notes? What is he hiding in those notes? And when I finally got my hands on those notes that were sitting in a box in storage, never looked at for 15 years, I realized at that moment when I was glancing across those notes at the kitchen table in Cape Cod and reading things that were that were totally contradictory to the trial evidence that totally supported what was telling me all along, I, it was then that I became convinced that what Odell was telling me about the facts was true and what the, the prosecutor said was not true. I, I found suppressed evidence. I, uh, they said that they never found the victim's umbrella, and I found a picture of the victim's umbrella, which was bent, and I started figuring, you know, wondering whether that was the murder weapon. I mean, there were just so many things, you know, time after time again, that started surfacing, that, uh, that started making me question, wow, who is this prosecutor? Who is this prosecutor that would send a letter to a, an expert witness and tell them, you know, who is pro se, which means you don't, you know, charge for your services, you know, you're welcome back to Virginia um, anytime so we can give you a spanking like you deserve. You were worth every penny you were paid. 
Who, who in their right mind as an authority figure speaks like that? This is the type of individual that I was working and fighting against. Right. And so as I started accumulating all of this evidence and, um, and realizing that they, their case was not what they said it was, and when I saw that the DNA testing was an exclusion, that the one, the one piece of evidence that we were allowed to test uh, was you know, an exclusion, which meant that it was not the victim's blood, I thought, you know, we really need to test the whole thing. We need to do DNA tests. And remember, Susan, back then, in the early 19, uh, 1990s and late 80s, Odell was convicted in 1985. In mm-hmm. 1986, he was asking the judge for DNA testing, and guess what? In 1986, DNA testing was barely used to convict guilty. Right, And right. he had the foresight to ask for it to prove his innocence. For 10, you know, 10 years, he fought to have DNA testing to prove his innocence. So this case was literally instrumental in bringing DNA testing to the forefront and showing how, how necessary it was, because at that time, Barry Sheck had one innocence project in New York. I started the second innocence project at the Rutgers School of Law, and at the time we had no DNA testing laws throughout our country. We were starting to initiate DNA legislation, giving inmates across the country, you know, the the right to have DNA testing to prove their innocence. So this case was remarkably important, um, historic, as a matter of fact, in its significance, and that it really catapulted the importance of DNA testing and truth with regard to exonerations. There are very few there. We have now 311 exonerations, 12, you know, DNA tested alone, 1,200 exonerations in our country. You know, it's growing. Right. And the reason why I wrote The Corruption of Innocence Adjourned for Justice is to educate people about what happens behind closed doors. We never get to see that because the media controls what we all get to see. But I, I saw, you know, time and time again, all these wrongful convictions, instead of getting, becoming less in numbers, as Barry Shekin saw many years ago, I was seeing more and more cases. And the reason why we're seeing that, and I and demonstrate in my book, is unless and until, Susan, we address the underlying issues, underlying reasons for wrongful convictions, they will continue to happen over and over again. And if we don't have truth and if we don't have accountability and if we don't have integrity in the system, then we have nothing. And that's what I'm promoting. I'm promoting, you know, the change in the system. And I want to show women that we can make a difference in the world, that we can be one person up against insurmountable odds and that it doesn't matter. You tackle your challenges, run them over. You never give up. You stand with your, with your truth and your power of knowledge. And then you ultimately can have the world to stand with your cause and be in, and, and go after your mission like I did. Right. Right. You're, you're the perfect example of that, actually. Um, Lori, we're going to take one last quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to, there's a few more questions I have um, about the case, but I'd like to talk a little bit about your daughter and what an example you are for her. We'll be right back.
the Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at WPN at Villanova.edu or visit their website at Villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back, everyone. I'm in the studio today with Lori St. John, attorney and author of The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice. And uh, before the break, um, Lori, we we talked a lot about the case, and I have so many questions about the case that we'll never be able to cover today. One of those being, um, why do you think from the very beginning that the prosecutors and the attorney general um, in Virginia wanted to target Joseph Odell so strongly. And and my very obvious question was why the boyfriend of the victim was never um, a focus. Yeah, good point. Typically in cases like this, when you have prosecutors and um, and governors who are up for uh, political re-election, the, judge, the prosecutor wanted to become a judge. He was up for judgeship nomination. The governor wanted to become a Senate, a senator. Both of them succeeded after Joseph O'Dell, you know, after that case was over. Um, so when, when you have someone in that position, uh, they don't want to admit they made a mistake. 
you know, to me, and this is what, what's so important to me, whether you're an attorney, not attorney, what have you, you know, if you made a mistake, big deal. You made a mistake, it makes you a better person and you fun. But making a mistake in a capital case where someone is facing death and admitting that, that you're wrong, you know, would not look good for your political career. And so largely what happens across America, it's not just the Odell case, it's m- m- nine times out of ten, maybe even more than that, the prosecutors will never admit they made a mistake. They will actually come up with a different theory that they used at trial. They'll do anything in their power not to admit they made a mistake, even so much so that sometimes when they have found a real murderer, turn their heads and look the other way, because that would be admitting that you made the mistake. So it's it just, it's a political game. And unfortunately, right. the person is in. And why did they target Joe Odell? Joe Odell was an acquire boy. He had uh, about 10 convictions for stealing cars and joyriding when he was 16 years old and robbing convenience stores with his buddy that he met in prison when he was sent to jail when he was 16 for, for um, stealing cars. Right. So um, it's easy to target someone that has a record, whatever right. that record might be. And so they target that person. And so that answers um, that one question. And I think you had another question, Susan. Well, I guess my it was about but the boyfriend. Why why the, the boyfriend? boyfriend? Yes, yeah, indeed. I always thought, you know, there yes that that he was not looked at because he was a correctional guard um, at a facility, and you know he had you know for viewers that don't know, you know she he had a dating relationship with the victim, and he had driven thirteen hours from the correctional facility to go on a date with the victim that night and met her at the club that night and was dancing with her. And then when she went to the ladies' room and he was dancing in the arms of another woman, you know, she became upset, obviously, and she left the, the club at about 11, 20, between 11.20 and 11.30. Odell left the club at 12. Um, no one really looked at him, and, and, and I, I will say, um, it is in the book, that, that uh, there was one investigator that did um, interview this individual, and the investigator was not probably the best investigator, so that if he came back and told Richard Reyna and I, wow, something was really strange with him, well, that meant, wow, we really should follow up on it. And no one ever really did. No one ever ever followed up with, with this individual. And I think he was someone that certainly should have been, been looked at. Yes, yes. So, you know, sometimes that happens. There are there are parties where you're focusing on one person, you put your blinders on, and you don't look elsewhere. Right. They were looking at someone who fit the profile. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about all through this journey, uh, those years that you were um, investigating. And by the way, you were not an investigator. (laughs) You were not an attorney when you were doing all this. It's just so incredible. You were raising a daughter and you were going to law school and you went through a divorce. Um, That's a lot of stuff on your plate. And uh, I'd love to know what, you know, a lot about this show is is trying to inspire and build self-esteem in, in young girls and women. And what it was you were saying to your daughter throughout that entire journey, um, you know, that I just can't imagine what type of a uh, role model you were for her, but what types of conversations did you have with her about what you were doing and why it was so important to you? Well, you know, 
sometimes the unspoken word is more powerful than the spoken word. Yes. And, and I will say by her watching my actions, uh, she saw what I was doing every step of the way because she lived with me. Mm-hmm. And so she saw me gathering the evidence. I shared it with her. I mean, at some point, you know, it's so funny. I had a, someone in Philadelphia uh, do an interview and uh, they were talking about me and they were saying disparaging things about me. They had no idea who I was. And, you know, here is my 12 year old child, you know, calling in radio station and saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, and she <laughs> knew the facts of the case better than lawyers. Did you know that blah, blah, blah. And she was spewing off the facts. Like, how old was she? When, how old she was she? She was 12 when this happened. Oh my she gosh. Like mother, like did. daughter. <laughs> and, you know, Sister Helen Prejean called afterwards and she said, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, normally I would never engage in this. So right. Jennifer is her name. Jennifer, yes. I never could have done it had I not had her support. She um, never complained the whole time that I was doing this. And literally, I mean, I was doing it day and night. I would take her to a you know, soccer game, and I would bring my material with me. At times, she was faxing things for me. When I was getting things from the Italian parliament, I would have to fax it to, you know, somewhere. You know, so she, you know, saw from day one, you know, never give up. Right. It was near the end when I saw that she was just getting tired of it, and she really wanted my attention. And it was really tugging at me because that was the time where I had least amount of attention to give her because, you know, it was we were nearing the end. Right, um, right. But she was a tr- from day one. And, you know, she did ultimately go to law school and she had, you know, very high a- aspirations. She was going to go to law school and medical at the school at the same time. Her father was an orthopedic surgeon. And so she, you know, always believed that you can go after what you want and, uh, you know, it's, it's really important to never give up. And so, you know, as a girl, she learned, you know, to do that. Right. You learned not to let challenges stop you and to be forthright and just, you know, push forward and move forward because you have to understand, even back then, you know, this is a male dominated field in many regards. And, you know, I was entering an area that even if there's females in the area, um, you know, there's not a lot of real strong ones. You don't see too many, you know, strong ones out there. And so I think it's helpful to her and, you know, showing her you know, what is possible. And she was just amazing. My number one supporter, I, I dedicated my, my, to her and the, you know, my, my late husband who just passed away last year. Oh, okay. You know, I'm sure it was hard for her to see the emotional toll all of it took on you, but at the very, you know, same time on the flip side, the determination that you had was such a lesson for her. Yes. Yeah, it was actually a lesson for her. So um, she learned a great deal from it, I think, and she's incorporated some of the the values and the principles. And you know, those that I talked about at the beginning of the the interview, Susan, regarding you know how you accomplish what you do. If I could take just a second to tell your audience, I think it's so important. You know, whether it's in my position as a, a CPA, you know, as a lawyer. I was a real estate developer in the project that I had no idea what I was doing. It turned out, you know, to be one of the best projects in in Denver. Um, You know, you can tackle just about anything. If you acquire knowledge, if you're detail-oriented, and make sure you you capture all the the details, details will either make you win or not. And if we're 
when I was, you know, litigating cases in the public defender's office in Newark. You know, it's those details that allowed me to win court cases over and over again. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have details. It's important to have truth in your pocket, to be determined and persistent. I mean, persistence will get you a lot of friends. It will maybe also get you a lot of enemies. They'll hate you because you're not going away. Right. <laughs> if you're not going away, they're going to have to eventually give you what you want. That's you know, right. To get you to go away. Right. So but persistence you... is really important. And right. Gathering a powerful team of experts. You know, I like I, I you can't be intimidated by authority because I know that there's many people in authoritative figures that really don't have the kind of knowledge and information you think they do. Just because they're authoritative figures, it really should mean nothing to you other than, you know, they have a job and they're in a position. So don't, you know, give in to that. Don't give deference to that. Mm-hmm. You know, get your own team of experts because I'm saying it, you can't work alone when fighting something like this. And any mission, any accomplishment that you endeavor to succeed at, you need a team of experts, whether it's my real estate project, you know, this book that I wrote, um, I, I hired uh, John Grisham's graphic designer to do the, the cover for the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to the top, to the best. Right. And then you have to think about strategy because strategy is really important. You know, learning about your adversary, your enemy, if you so call it, you know, um, get all the information, be strategic. And my real estate development, I knew that they could shut you down and hold you up for two years in the water rights course. So I made sure that I had my water rights before I had my first public hearing, so they couldn't do that. So know your game, learn your game, you know, know how to be strategic, keep the momentum going, identify your successes along the way, because when you're, do- you know, when you have successes, there's going to be some failures. So, you're, you know, you, you said it beautifully. I had one step forward and three steps back. That's right. And so I, I, I grabbed on to my successes, whether it was a press conference with Sister Helen Prejean or learning about new suppressed evidence. And then I was, you know, five steps back because the prosecutor threatened to sue the newspaper. Well, move forward. You right. know, go past those. That's and, right. You know, identify that your successes um, are what they are, even when they first appear as failures. Turn them around them and you and use them to your advantage. Right, that's and great advice. All, enjoy the game, you know, yep. because you know we're in life once. We through this life only once. Right, make it enjoy exciting. Yeah, have fun. You know, I mean, you know, there was some fun I had in this case. Absolutely, you know, laughing with the investigator as traveling through the wild mountains of West Virginia, and we have no cell phone, and, you know, and I'm asking him if he has a gun in his pocket. You know, he says no, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, it was like fighting. <laughs> you know, I mean, just there's, there's laughter, and there's tears, and there's challenges, and it's all over the place, but have fun. Go after what you want. Never give up on your dreams. And, you know, the corruption of innocence, the journey for shows you how to do just that, you know, not just not to defer to other people and just be true and authentic. And that is just so powerful. Right. That is such great advice, Lori. And, you know, I hate to say it, but we're at the end of the show and I'm so appreciative of your telling your story. Um, I'm hoping to have a follow up with you because there's there's so much more to talk about. Yes. Yes, there is. And and, uh, hopefully you'll see it um, as we talked earlier on the screen. Um, you know, hopefully the viewers at some point were in the midst of discussing those opportunities right now. And uh, right. You know, I'm really willing and ready to get it out there to the audience. Okay. Thanks, Lori. And you have a great week. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Susan, for having me. 
That's it for Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Have a great week, everyone.